Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Chairs reflect the change of styles over time better than any other form of furniture. They get a lot of use, and when they wear out, owners usually want to replace them with the latest style. On October 15, 2018, as part of the Works in Progress series at the National Gallery of Art, Professor Oscar Fitzgerald of the Corcoran School of Art and Design at George Washington University traces the evolution of furniture styles from the 17th to the 20th century. Referencing highlights from masterpieces of American furniture from the Kaufman Collection, 1700 to 1830, installed in the West Building, Fitzgerald discusses 17th century mannerism, Baroque, Rococo, and neoclassical styles of the 18th century, the Victorian reaction to classical design in the 19th century, and 20th century modernism, with its rejection and then rediscovery of ornament. Well, the first styles uh, uh, is the Jacobean style, and uh, there is some discussion in the field of what to call these uh, styles. I like the traditional American furniture uh, style terminology. Uh, some people that are uh, kind of don't I don't agree with I want to use the art history terms, but then the same people don't want to consider this art. They want to consider it as cultural uh, artifacts and cultural history. So it's kind of weird. And if you say uh, mannerism uh, instead of Jacobean, I, we always have to define it. So I like the traditional terms. And why 1650? My gosh, we were settled in 1607. That is, if you live in Virginia. Um, they don't realize that up in New England when it was 1620 up there. But anyway, uh, nothing uh, survives much before uh, 1640, 1650s. And the reason for that is there weren't uh, that many people here. They were much more interested in trying to make a living and scratch out a living, make a houses. Uh, people in Philadelphia, or near Philadelphia, lived in caves for uh, the first uh, couple of years uh, before they could afford nice houses. So 1650 to 1690. And the people that made the furniture were uh, really two types, uh, turners, who made the chair on the left on a lathe, and then uh, joiners on the right, who made the furniture using mortise and tenon joints so that would frame a piece of wood. And uh, you can see that the person on the right, the joiner, was not really into making lathes, uh, using lathes, because the arms and legs are square. They're cut, uh, cut with a saw. Uh, which is what the joiner would do. You may wonder, why did they leave that panel blank above the seat? And the reason is that that would have been fitted with a big cushion that would have filled that space with about five pounds of feathers. And uh, so that chair would have really been quite comfortable, uh, even though it looks uh, pretty hard. It's uh, oak. Oak was the wood of the 18th, uh, 17th century. The next style is quite radically different from that, from roughly 1690 to 1725. And you can see the furniture really is quite different. And the, there are a lot of explanations for that. One is the fact that William and Mary uh, came to the throne in the 1680s, and they came from Holland. And they were really kind of hesitant to go to England because it was really in the boondocks and out, uh, out in the country. But uh, they were looking at France next door, and they thought, well, if we were king of England, we can resist France with two countries instead of just one. So they did, and they brought with them all the latest styles and lots of, of the craftsmen, who a lot of whom had uh, left France uh, in the late 17th century because of the revocation of the Edict of Nantes which uh, allowed the Protestants to practice their religion uh, 
and many of these Protestants were cabinet makers and craftsmen, and they came with William and Mary to England bringing these new styles. And what's new? Well, one thing that's new is, is caning. All of a sudden you see caning, and that comes from the Far East. And the Far Eastern influence starts uh, under Charles II, who comes to the throne before William and Mary, and brings with him his wife, Catherine of Braganza, who was from Portugal. And as part of her dowry, allowed England to trade with the Far East and bring things, such things like caning to, uh, to England. And also, if you look at the backs of those chairs, they curve back a little bit, which is pretty nice. It makes them much more comfortable. And the Chinese have been doing that for a long time. And when Westerners saw that, oh, we want to do that too. So that's another element. Uh, these three chairs represent three different aesthetics uh, from different parts of the country. Uh, the chair on the left is uh, from Boston, uh, the chair in the center is from New York, and the chair on the right is from Philadelphia. Uh, and in addition to Newport and Charleston, those were the five major style centers in the country in, this, in the 18th century. Well, by the Queen Anne period, things changed radically again, and all of the turnings and elaborate carving disappear, and it is all about curves. And you can see this, again, one of the Kaufman Collection chairs. Uh, this chair traditionally had been uh, uh, attributed to Newport, but uh, some more recent research indicates that probably it was made in Boston. And the evidence for that is that if you look at the newspapers in Newport in, the, in this early 18th century period, no cabinet makers, no chair makers advertising. But in Boston, hundreds were advertising, and it's not that far from Boston to Newport. And so this was probably exported to Newport, but made in Boston. Another chair uh, in the Queen Anne style, uh, these were made in Philadelphia. And uh, again, you can see the curves, the cabriole leg. Uh, this one ends in a sort of a treffed foot, and the treffed foot actually comes from, uh, from uh, Ireland, and there was a large Irish contingent in Philadelphia. Uh, it also has the ovoid rear uh, legs, if you cut through, it looks like an ovoid, and that's characteristic of Philadelphia, too. Uh, has uh, scallop shells uh, on the knees and also on the seat rail, and uh, that's the classical influence. Most furniture... Uh, throughout the 18th century is based on classical design and, and, and uh, the proportions and all, a lot of the, all the details are really classically inspired. The seat is called a compass seat because of the, not the try to find your way type compass, but the type that you draw circles with. And that uh, is the shape of the seat. Well, the Chippendale style comes in about 1790 and another radical change. The curves disappear and everything becomes much more rectilinear. Not everything, though. Everything pretty much in England does, but in America, uh, we were a little slow on the uptake and we continued to make ball and claw feet and we continued to make the cabriole leg. But uh, the, uh, the newest style is the straight Marlboro leg. And the term, uh, the title of the style comes from Thomas Chippendale, who published the first book of, of designs in 1755, uh, 1754, a second edition in 55, and a third edition in 1762. And if you go to the title page of his book, you will see uh, the uh, three elements, the three design sources for that style. And uh, starting on the right, you can see see the influence of the Gothic with the quatrefoils and the, uh, the pointed Gothic arches. In the center, clearly the Chinese uh, influence. 
And on the left, the modern taste, which is what he called basically Rococo designs. And when we think of Chippendale furniture, Rococo is the dominant influence. I'm reminded when I look, look at this furniture of a, an ad that I once saw for, I think it was for Ethan Allen Furniture, and it said, Mr. Chippendale would have really loved this Queen Anne chair. <laughs> and they, got, they, they hit all, the, all, of the, uh, all of the buzzwords, but they're quite different, you can see. After Chippendale published his designs, other people published designs too. And uh, this is Robert Mann Waring uh, illustrating a, a chair on the right uh, from about 1760, and a chair that obviously was designed from that book uh, in Boston about that time. Mann Waring was very influential in, in Boston. And you can see the bond claw foot, which as I said, by this period in America was very popular, but in England was totally outdated except for rural English furniture. And the furniture is very light and delicate. You can see the sort of stylized acanthus carving on the knees, but it's kind of very wispy looking, and uh, that was typical of Boston. The regional characteristics continue, and the three chairs very different in uh, interpretation. Uh, the chair on the left is the Philadelphia interpretation, very much nice Rococo carving in the splat, uh, carving on the uh, knees. The chair in the center, a very English-looking chair with the tassel and ruffle. You see that on a lot of English chairs on the splat. Uh, if you can't see too well, but the arms uh, end in eagle's heads, and that appears on a lot of English furniture. And the little hoof on the rear leg, that appears on English furniture as well. The chair on the right uh, is Boston. Again, that kind of light, wispy, uh, airy look to it. Uh, so uh, wispy and, and airy, you can notice that the seat rail is much thinner, and uh, the Boston thought it needed to continue making uh, the furniture with stretchers to reinforce uh, the, the chair. Uh, this is uh, one of the really outstanding pieces in the Kaufman collection. This is actually not really in the Kaufman collection. This is in the uh, Winterthur collection, but the other two other chairs from the same set are in the Kaufman collection. And uh, they came up for auction in England in the 18, 1980s and uh, were thought to be English chairs until some clever uh, person working for the auction house said, oh no, that's like the Winterthur chair, took them off of, of the auction block, sent them over to New York. In the meantime, Joe Kindig was on his way over thinking he's going to get a big bargain of getting these chairs, but unfortunately they sold in New York for 47000 each, and I think that's when the Kaufmans bought the chair. But it shows that if Americans wanted to, and if they had the resources, they could get as fancy a chair as anything produced in England. These were produced in Philadelphia. We know that for sure because what they are actually signed by an upholsterer from about 1910 in Philadelphia, which documents that they were, uh, were in Philadelphia. And of course, it has that rounded ovoid uh, section rear leg as well. Easy chairs, uh, we call them wing chairs today, but uh, the wings that were actually called cheeks in the period, and they usually were in bedrooms, and they were really very, very useful because if you had a cold in the, in the 18th century and you woke up in the morning, you would be all stuffed up. Same thing happens today, but if you went off and uh, slept in, up, sitting up in your easy chair, you wake up in the morning, you don't have that problem, and they figured that out. Uh, they did maybe keep the, the wind off your uh, cheek, but you know they didn't have the wind that was open or anything like that. It really was more for resting on. And again, two different interpretations. The chair on the right, Philadelphia, with the horizontally rolled arms, 
and the chair on the left with the vertically rolled arms, which is typical of easy chairs made in Boston. But if you look more closely at this chair, you notice the knees are quite fat, and they're also walnut, two things that you wouldn't expect on Boston chairs. And the ball and claw foot is not a typical Baltimore, a Baltimore, a Boston ball and claw foot with the retracted talon where the talon angles back. Very likely, this is a southern chair. Well, in the late 19, uh, 18th century, uh, neoclassicism is the style, and neo means new. So what's new about classicism? Classicism dominates the design in the 18th century, but the design is dominated by exterior classical elements. And if you look at, for example, a, a high boy or uh, uh, other uh, case pieces with the bonnet, some of them have a pitched bonnet or a scrolled bonnet, all of those are exterior architectural details. Uh, but Robert Adam takes the grand tour, as so many uh, people did in the uh, late 18th century, tours around to these classical sites and figures out that, you know, the exteriors of these classical buildings are a lot different from the interiors of the building. If we look at this room, we'd have no idea that the National Gallery looked like a classical building on the outside. It's very plain and very simple, and that is the essence of the classical design, and you can see that everything becomes a much more two-dimensional. Uh, the carving is more two-dimensional. You have inlay and veneers. Uh, you have gentle turned legs or tapered legs, and uh, two different interpretations of the chair based on two other design books. The, the chair on the right is based on the drawing book published by uh, uh, Thomas Sheridan, and uh, the one on the left is by George Hepplewhite, and his chair has the, the shield-shaped back and the tapered leg, while the Sheridan one has the turned legs and the square-shaped back. Now, the truth is, if you look at those two design books, you'll see a few chairs of each in both of those books. But today, it's a nice distinction to make. We go, oh, that's a Sheridan-style chair, even though it might have actually, uh, if they, you might see a chair similar to it. Uh, American furniture generally is uh, copies uh, European furniture, particularly English furniture, particularly rural English furniture. Uh, but in a couple of cases, we did uh, innovate uh, in coming up with a new style of, of furniture. And here you see on the right that new style of furniture, which today uh, we often call it Martha Washington chair or a lolling chair. And um, not quite clear why it's called a Martha Washington chair. There is a Martha Washington chair at Mount Vernon uh, in her bedroom. And I went down there one time. I asked them, well, how long has that chair been there? And they said, well, uh, since about 1897. Oh, well, that, gee, didn't Martha die about 19, 1810? So she never owned one. They just thought they had to have one because of the Martha Washington connection. Uh, the chair evolves from the chair on the left, which is a Chippendale-style chair, uh, which is based on an illustration in Chippendale's design book, which he called a French elbow chair. And what Americans did is to take that form and update it with neoclassical details with the higher back and the delicate turned legs. And there's even uh, veneers on the, uh, uh, the legs as well. And so it's much more delicate, and, uh, and uh, this does not exist in Europe. Uh, sofas become very popular in the early uh, 19th century. There are a few Chippendale-style sofas, but very rare. But in the early 19th century, they almost become de rigueur, 
And here are two styles, both of them from the Coffin Collection. Uh, the one on the top, a very common with that detached arm, and you see that style, that's a Boston one, but the similar ones were produced all the way up and down the Atlantic coast. The one on the right is a, Philadelphia, a, a, a Baltimore one, which was called a cabriole sofa, which had that rounded back. Well, the neoclassical style has really three phases. And we, the first phase I uh, call the federal phase, which is very two-dimensional and uh, based on elements of classical design. The second phase, the empire style, or also known as the Grecian style, is much more three-dimensional. And you can see the carving here on this chair, uh, the winged caryatids and the, uh, the lyre in the, in the back. And also notice that the crest curls over. It doesn't just come straight up, it curls over. And uh, that uh, interpretation of classicism is, is introduced around uh, 1810. Uh, this particular chair is attributed to Charles-Henri Lanouet, who was a Frenchman, emigrated to New York uh, in the early 19th century, and uh, produced some of the most elegant furniture in that period. The people, the person we know the best in this period is Duncan Fife. Uh, there are, this is uh, furniture from uh, the Kaufman collection as well. And uh, he probably was one of the largest uh, cabinet makers in New York in this period and was known all over the country. Even in Alexandria, I was when I was going through the Alexandria Gazettes to study the green furniture in Alexandria, there's an ad for glue, and it said uh, Duncan Fife would have approved this glue if you, you know, buy it. So even in Alexandria, we knew about Duncan Fife. Notice also the Clismos-style legs. Uh, the furniture in this period often copies the Clismos chairs that uh, you would see on uh, classical uh, Greek uh, vases and uh, other uh, uh, classical artifacts. And those chairs look very much like these with the tablet going across the crest. Uh, and notice also caning comes back into style. Uh, immediately after the revolution, the empress of China uh, set sail from Philadelphia to begin trading in the Far East, uh, which was prohibited under the uh, British uh, uh, mercantile system. The chair on the right is a Baltimore chair with a painted decoration. The chair on the left from Philadelphia has brass inlay. And that is known as Boulle work, uh, named after Alexandre, uh, 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 Andre Boulle, who was a French cabinet maker in the early 18th century. He didn't invent the idea, but was very well known for that, uh, that style. And Boulle work was twice as expensive as metal, a wooden inlay. And painted furniture was even cheaper. So that chair was really quite expensive originally. Uh, Grecian-style sofa. The sofas evolve into this uh, uh, classical Grecian form, another uh, piece from the Coffin Collection. Uh, it is grain-painted, and it's grain-painted to suggest rosewood. Uh, they really weren't trying to imitate rosewood because the graining is vertical, whereas if it was really trying to imitate rosewood, of course, the grain would be running horizontally. But very elegant, uh, painted uh, Grecian couch. Well. Like all these styles, people become bored with, uh, the, the, with the classical designs. And there's this great uh, d uh, quote from Alexander Jackson Downing, uh, who wrote the book called The Architectural of Country Houses. And he talks about classicism. And he says, oh, if you want that, you know, that boring classical stuff, and you know, it's really pretty, but it, you know, it's, it's, it's boring, go with Victorian design, which is really a way to make a statement that's really quite robust. He didn't use the term Victorian, he used the term picturesque, which is what describes the Victorian aesthetic. 
and the other thing about the Victorian aesthetic that I love that, that is often underappreciated is the element of surprise. And of course, the material is a surprise in itself, but do you see the other surprise? Do you see the 10-gallon hat on the crest? That's just fantastic, really. Uh, the Victorian design uh, starts really with the Gothic revival. Uh, we saw some little bit of Gothic in the 18th century and through the classical period, but it kind of bursts out uh, and becomes full-blown in the 1830s. And uh, it's not as popular as it was in England. Uh, when England decided to rebuild the Westminster Parliament building, big controversy. Should we do classical? Should we do Gothic? Well, if you know, if you've been to England, you know it ended up being Gothic. And so uh, it was very popular in Europe. America, not so much, but a little bit. And you can see it here in this chair with that rose window suggestion on the back. But it still has the elements of what we think of Vic Victorian as the Rococo revival with the cabriole legs on the base. And there is full-blown Rococo revival. The best known cabinet maker in this era is John Henry Belter, uh, who uh, immigrated uh, from Germany to New York in the 1840s and worked into the 1860s, and was known for his curved back sofas, which were laminated and bent around a mold called a call, and then glued up and gave you a very strong, almost like plywood, well, it was a plywood back, to allow you to carve uh, through the back, and if that was a solid wood, it would just fall apart but with the being plywood, it's very strong and really quite uh, spectacular. The Victorian period <laughs> had uh, several phases. Uh, the first phase, and as I say, the most uh, best known is the, uh, the Rococo, but there was also the Renaissance phase, which was came on a little later than Rococo, but at pretty much the same time, and it is all very rectilinear. The turn legs instead of the uh, cabriole legs, <coughs> And uh, you have little uh, ears on the edges of the cr crest and a very prominent uh, crest on the top of the chair. And uh, that is the Victorian design. Also notice the fatter cushions. Uh, these, this is based on Louis the 16th furniture from the 18th century. Uh, but if you look, to look at Louis the 16th furniture, it's very uh, trim in upholstery. But by the early 19th century, there's this brand new thing which everybody just loved. The coil springs were introduced. Now. Would you rather sit on those hard steel coil springs or five pounds of feathers? We are so gullible. Everybody thought, no, I want the coil springs. How stupid. But anyway, it was good for the upholsterer, and uh, that's why you need the fatter seat. Well, people got bored with Victorian design, and they thought it was too excessive and uh, too much, and uh, the poor cabinet makers working in the factories were being, uh, uh, being taken advantage of. You had to do the same thing day after day, and, and it was so, uh, so uh, I don't know what they thought, uh, pushing the wood through the saw was, was so uh, bad, it would be much better to... Oh, yeah. Well, it, those reformers never actually made any furniture, and they really didn't realize how easy, much easier it was to just push it through the wood, uh, through the uh, saw. But anyway, people bought into that, and uh, simplicity was the thing, and the Eastlake style is much simpler now than you see that Renaissance style. The legs are turned less uh, robustly, and there's this little a row of spindles that I, 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 you find on lots of Eastlake furniture, which comes from that first chair that I showed you that had lots of turned spindles. And uh, the pop, it was popularized 
by the book that Eastlake published called Hints on Household Taste, How to Furnish Your House, and he illustrates it with eight or 10 pieces, maybe six or eight pieces of furniture, mostly from Knoll, not Knoll, the furniture company, but K-O-N-O-L-E, the country house just outside of London, and uh, this is the inspiration for that chair. And at the same time in this period, uh, there is the Eastlake style, but then there is a lot of eclectic furniture and furniture that was in the aesthetic taste. And the aesthetic taste was not really a style, but it was just an approach. Instead of furniture that was used to acculturate the family with parlor furniture, a lot of the, uh, the Rococo and Renaissance furniture had uh, symbolic flowers and all sorts of symbolic stuff on it. Uh, uh, Oscar Wilde toured the country from England. And he said, "Art for art's sake. We want to, you know just pretty stuff." And the, some of the prettiest stuff made in this period ever actually was done by the Herder brothers. And uh, this is one of their chairs. There's not a straight line in it. It's unbelievable in the workmanship. It's all gilded. It has uh, mother of pearl plaques on the seat rail and on the uh, stay rail that uh, just above the seat. If you could see clearly, you could notice that there was kind of like rope surrounding the, the medallion, uh, the, the mother pearl medallion on the rail, seat rail. Uh, on, the rope becomes a serpent as it wraps around the rectangular uh, medallion on the seat rail. I saw one of these chairs at the New York Antique Show. I was sitting there, and I said, oh, how much is this chair? And they said, oh, that's a million dollars. I quickly got up. I was kind of shocked. Uh, too bad. I would have loved it. Well, uh, the critique of Victorian design continues and uh, is reflected in the arts and crafts movement. And uh, William Morris in, in England is one of the proponents of this, again, uh, railing against the factory production and the ornate design. One of the critiques was that all of that ornate stuff is just covering up poor workmanship. Kind of ridiculous, really. Uh, and you know, uh, today we look at Victorian design. We think, oh, it's you know, it's not symmetrical and all that. Well, that was the point. It was anti-classical, and uh, all of the carving was really much better than the 18th century carving, and it was still done by hand. The uh, carving machines were not invented till really the uh, 1890s. So the arts and crafts movement and. Uh, today we call it the mission furniture, and part of the reason for that is that the, the chair on the right actually comes from the Swedenborgen church being built in San Francisco in the 1890s. And uh, a friend of Joseph McHugh, who put, produced the chair on the left, sent him that chair and said, you might be interested in this. So he made a copy of it, more or less, you can see on the left, and it was a huge success. And all of a sudden, uh, mission furniture was all the rage. And the name that we associate with Mission Furniture uh, is the Stickley, uh, Gustav Stickley. But he also had four brothers, and one of his brothers, Albert, uh, made the chair on the left, and that company was actually called Stickley Brothers. Gustav was uh, called Craftsman Furniture. The chair on the right is quite unusual in that it has a little bit of inlay in it. And uh, that only occurred for about two years when Harvey Ellis was the designer of the furniture for Stickley. And uh, so consequently, that is very uh, desirable and very in, in, uh, in demand. Uh, the chair on the left, a little more complex than the uh, rectilinear kind of plain uh, stickly furniture. And that's partly because uh, Albert did a lot of touring in England. Gustav went over too, but Albert was there quite a bit, even had a, a subsidiary in uh, England, quaint furniture. And uh, the furniture is really much more interesting. 
Well, uh, modernism is introduced uh, in uh, Europe uh, after World War I. Uh, the Europeans saw the horrors. I mean, it really was horrible, uh, World War I. Uh, and they decided that they wanted something new, something different to get away from all of that horrible stuff. And uh, you had people like Adolf Luz saying uh, ornament is, uh, is a crime. And... Uh, Basically, the crime was that they were making a virtue out of necessity. All those people that could do that great carving and uh, ornate design, those are the people that were killed in World War I. And then after the war, you had terrible devastation. You had to quickly refurnish re houses and, and buildings. And uh, the only way you could do it fast is with cheap unadorned furniture. So they, it really was a fraud, actually. I mean, I mean, we bought into it just like stupid Coral Springs. Uh, now, Americans had a different take on World War I. Uh, we went over and uh, saw the horrors, too. And uh, we said, OK, we don't want anything to do with Europe. And modernism was coming out of Europe. And he said, forget it. We don't want that. We want our own heritage. We, and so colonial revival takes off uh, in the 20s, actually goes back to uh, the uh, centennial. Even before the centennial, there was interest in colonial revival. But uh, through much of the eight, uh, 20th century, colonial revival Revival is the dominant style. Uh, and this is furniture from uh, by Wallace Metting, uh, who uh, worked in the 1920s. And you can see the catalog. You could have bought that uh, high chair for $31. Quite spectacular. But uh, the uh, modernism continues uh, in Europe in the 1920s. And a, the one of the centers of modernism was the Bauhaus, which was the German school uh, that uh, taught furniture design for the masses, good design for the masses. Well, uh, this is good design, but unfortunately, it's not for the masses. It's very expensive. And they, most modernists finally figured that out, uh, that you, you, good design just going to cost money. That's all there is to it. But uh, this is the famous Barcelona chair designed by Mies van der Rohe in 1929 for the Barcelona Pavilion, uh, the uh, Barcelona Expo that uh, was going to be opened by the king and queen, and they wanted a, these uh, sort of throne chairs. And after that, he puts it in production. And uh, after uh, 1933, the Bauhaus is closed by Hitler because he thinks it's kind of a communist you know, center, and he didn't like that idea. So all of, a lot of those people fortunately found their way to America and helped introduce modernism into, into America. And the Barcelona chair in, uh, after World War II is picked up by uh, Noel and uh, the rights to produce the chair and is still produced today. Now, when you think of modernism, you can think of modernism as kind of a continuum. Uh, you start uh, at the far uh, right with the chair we saw there, with its very high-tech and very uh, classical, uh, uh, classical design, very simple, unadorned. And then the other extreme is the organic side, where you see the furniture looks almost like it's made out of some sort of a plant that has uh, blossoms and, and uh, is actually growing. And this is a chair by Russell Wright, who uh, was very popular furniture, very popular in the 1950s. And of course, uh, Charles Eames, Charles and Ray Eames, uh, furniture for also for Herman Miller. Uh, this really is quite a revolutionary chair. Today, it's almost a cliche. We don't even hardly look at it. But if you notice that black disc on the back, that's rubber. And that gives a little give to the seat and the back. And so you don't need upholstery, for one. And 
it's then combined, the wooden seat is combined, which is bent in three dimensions, which is quite unusual, uh, and then attached to a, wood, a, a metal frame, which doesn't seem to go together, but it actually creates a kind of a, a creature where you think, oh, is this creature uh, friendly or not? Uh, there were other, the other company uh, that I mentioned was the Knoll uh, 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 Furniture Company, uh, established in the 1930s by Franz Knoll, who came over, uh, Hans Knoll, who came over from Germany. Parents had been cabinet makers, establishes the cabinet making firm. Marries Florence Knoll, uh, who actually ha had uh, attended the Cranbrook Academy along with Aero Saarinen. And the Cranbrook Academy in America was kind of our Bauhaus. And it was established uh, around 1930, uh, just outside of Detroit. The son of the owner of the Detroit Press uh, attended uh, some lectures by uh, Elio Saarinen, uh, Arrow's father, uh, who was well known, was well known uh, Finnish architect, uh, known for the Helsinki radio, uh, railroad station. If you ever go to Helsinki, that it's fabulous to see it. Uh, and they, but he comes over as the first director of the, of the Cranbrook Academy and. Uh, Errol Saron and many of the other modernists were trained there. Uh, this one uh, for uh, Noel is uh, trying to clean up the slum of legs that you know all chairs with four legs have, and he would like to have had it all out of plastic, but the plastic wasn't strong enough, so the metal is the metal base. Well, uh, modernism has its highlight in the 1950s. By the 60s, many of these modernists abandoned uh, large corporations. The uh, uh, Eames uh, goes into vi uh, video production, and uh, Harry Batoria becomes a, a sculptor, and uh, uh, people go into, uh, uh, Saarinen becomes a, more, more of an architect. He was an architect to start with, but go into furniture, uh, gets rid of quits making furniture. So uh, the, the uh, most talented people, the most creative furniture in America was being made in small studio furniture uh, uh, venues. And uh, the, the studio furniture uh, represented a rejection of those ideas of, of modernism that said ornament is bad. And it took until 1967 for this man right there in the corner, Robert Venturi, to, to say, you know, ornament, why should we avoid 2,000 years of Western ornaments? It's, it's really crazy. And people say, yeah, you know, I think you're right. We were really taken in by all that stupid stuff about ornament is, is uh, bad. And so here you see a set of chairs that was produced by Noel, and uh, it's a riff on the 18th and early 19th century design, the Chippendale chair in the center there next to a Queen Anne chair on the left and a federal style chair here on, in the foreground. Uh, but as I said, the most creative designers were the studio furniture makers and uh, uh, John Cedarquist, I think, is one of the most creative. This is actually in the Renwick collection and uh, it is actually a chair. It's, you wouldn't hardly know it. It looks, three to, it looks like a, a wall hanging or something like that. Uh, that's a marlin, and uh, he grew. Uh, he worked in California, and uh, one time was out marlin fishing, and they caught a marlin, and he looked down, and that marlin was looking at him like, what have you done to me? So you notice he's f covered up the eyes on this guy. He's, he's not going to look at you. You don't have to worry about it. Uh, other people in the studio furniture field, uh, this is by Vivian Beer. Uh, Vivian Beer was a, 
uh, interesting, started out as a sculptor, uh, trained at Cranbrook, and uh, she realized that, you know, people would look at her sculpture and say, oh, that's pretty nice, and then turn over, and that was it. And she noticed that they paid more attention to furniture. So she is taking furniture and making, uh, making it into sculptures to, to grab people. Everybody relates to furniture, and that grabs them, and then you can appreciate the sculpture. This uh, she calls uh, Slither Walk Fly. And it's really pretty creative. And so what is the future of a furniture design? Well, the future is in 3D printing. And if you've ever read the uh, Star Trek uh, business, uh, they had a replicator on board that would uh, 3D print stuff. And uh, this is a 3D printed chair uh, done, uh, designed by Sulan Colaton and uh, William McDonald, uh, architects in New York. And it was uh, 3D printed by Materialese Corporation in, uh, in uh, uh, Belgium. And um, so that is the future. And if you want to uh, know more about uh, furniture, uh, you can get a 3D printer or you can buy my book. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, any 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 questions? Anybody have any questions? Uh, yes. How about your favorite? My favorite. <laughs> you know, uh, the funny thing about it is uh, when we first when I first got interested in furniture, uh, the big thing was 18th century furniture, and uh, so we got uh, sucked into 18th century furniture. And I really uh, love 18th century furniture. Uh, one of my favorite pieces is in my book. It's a, 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 a 1760. Uh, Oxbow desk made in Boston. And uh, believe it or not, some nights I've, I've just sat down and taken it apart and looked at it and just, it's fabulous. But as I've uh, studied the furniture, I've studied all the periods of furniture, and uh, there is uh, stuff to love in all of it. And uh, um, we have a piece of uh, furniture by James Krenov, and that that's just a fantastic piece. I knew him. He was a cabinet maker out in California, taught at the, uh, the um, College of Redwoods, uh, inspired a whole generation of cabinet makers. If you've ever gotten into cabinet making, he wrote five books about cabinet making, and he just uh, makes you want to go out and make furniture. We actually have a piece of his furniture, which is, was quite, uh, quite special. I, I walked into his uh, studio. He was making a making a piece, and I said, "Oh, is that for sale?" No, somebody somebody already ordered it. And uh, I said, "Well, uh, could could I get a piece?" Well, I don't mean maybe I don't know. And then we had a talk. He had to he had to test me, make sure I knew what I was talking about. So we sit there while I'm waiting and wanting to record him. And he, uh, I pass the test. We go into. Uh, to the uh, interview, and uh, about six months later, uh, he calls up and said, you still interested in that uh, piece? Uh, yeah, 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 okay. And so then another six months goes by, and he calls up, and he says, well, you still interested in that piece? I built, I made a piece for you, and, and I can ship it, and of course, this is sight unseen, you know? And uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, it so happened that uh, one of the people that uh, is, was one of his students, I happen to know, and she had actually seen the piece, and she said, it's great, you'll love it. So it arrived, and it was great, and I love it, and that's another piece I love. Um, so I, you know, I, it's hard to say what's the favorite. Yes? Do you sit in it? Well, the, the Krenov piece is actually a little cabinet. Oh, 
Uh, it's, a, it's a little cabinet. Uh, actually, the, the, uh, the, uh, what I do sit in, uh, it's pictured in the book. It's a, a centripetal chair. And uh, I used to take my students to the State Department, to the uh, Treasury Department. They have a lot of antiques furniture. Believe it or not, you can, t you can tour, this, tour it uh, if you get permission. And we went into the Secretary of Treasury's office, and there is this centripetal chair made about 1851 in, in Troy, New York. And I sat in that chair, and I thought, wow, that is really neat. So a couple of years at the York Antique Show, there's a centripetal chair for sale. And I sit in it, and oh, man, it was really great. And the guy said, you know, uh, you want it? And I'm thinking, oh, I don't know if I want it or not. And so we didn't get it. So then a couple months later, and the next York Antique Show, I go, and I go by that guy's booth, and he says, I brought the centripetal chair. And I sat in it again, and I said, I got to have that chair. And it's just really so comfortable. It's uh, on uh, coil springs, so it rocks around. And it's a, a metal, metal frame. It's really heavy. I had to get a, a plastic sheet to, so it would rock on. But uh, that, that's a favorite. And my desk, I sit at a George Nakashima desk, which my stupid son didn't want at first. Uh, we, we saw it down the street, you know, at this antique shop, and uh, called him up. He collects mid-century modern. What, why would you not want a, a Nakashima desk? Oh, I don't think so. Well, now he loves that desk, but it's my desk now. <laughs> um, but we did get him a Nakashima dining room table, same place, so he's, he's got something nice. But um, what else? You know, I sit in a shaker rocker when I read the paper at night, and uh, um, we have a uh, Tiffany lamp that... Uh, when I first, when we first married, we I inherited a, you know, Tiffany type lamp. wasn't Tiffany lamp at all, but it was stained glass, and I loved them. And one day I saw Tiffany lamps for sale, so we go up to Silver Spring, and this lady had six Tiffany lamps. The most expensive one was six hundred dollars, and I could have had them all for like two thousand, you know. And today, because again, you know, you need to listen to your wife. She liked the daffodils, and that was six hundred dollars. And so we ended up buying the $300 Roman one, which is nice, but you know it's worth maybe 7,000 now, but the, tiff, the daffodils, that's close to 100,000. That's the one I should have bought. <laughs> but anyway, we, just, uh, we, I, we have some Victorian stuff. We have a, a uh, um, actually, we have a place down in Tennessee, and it had a Merklin um, rocking chair that I didn't know was Merklin until I saw an article about it. And, um, then uh, we saw it at an auction, another Merklin chair come up for auction, and we went up uh, to bid on it, thinking it'd be worth, you know, get a real bargain, and we paid a premium price for it. And um, so then I called up the guy that wrote the article on Merklin chairs, and he said, Jai, you didn't believe that? I couldn't get that rocker. I bid it way up, and then you did. What do you mean? That's why it cost so much. And I, I got it out of from him. Anyway, a lot of stuff. <laughs> I'm going on and on. Yes? The third is uh, late empire, uh, sometimes called French restoration. I didn't show an illustration. You have the two-dimensional stuff, you have the three-dimensional stuff, and then the third uh, evolution is uh, very plain. It's it, When you say empire furniture, that's what people think of. It's all veneered, lots of curves, uh, no, uh, not much ornament, not much carving. Uh, actually quite expensive to do the veneering, particularly doing veneering around surfaces, if, like a, a column is, has entasis, it's, it swells a little bit, and to veneer that is very expensive. Uh, but today it's, it's not very popular because it is uh, big in scale and uh, was designed for big, big houses, but that's the third phase.
Yeah, good question. Yes. Um, I've noticed going to antique shows that the, the prices have dropped sort of precipitously. Is that, is that, I haven't particularly noticed it with chairs, but is that sort of why? What's happening? Well, I, you know, I, it's, you know, our children, like I say, uh, my daughter uh, is kind of lives a pathetic uh, life and, and, uh, doesn't have any much furniture, although they just bought a house and they've, you know, gotten to like some of the stuff. Uh, my son uh, is into mid-century modern, and that really is the hot market. Uh, I think several things have happened. Uh, number one, uh, you tend to whatever you tend to grow up with, you want something different, you know. Uh, <laughs> our kids grew up with antiques, and they were dragged around to antique shows, and I'm sure they said, "I don't want any of that stuff," uh, but. Uh, so mid-century modern is now coming to its own. That's one thing. Second thing is uh, the 18th century furniture uh, is still the very best stuff is very expensive. Um, the, the lesser stuff is still fairly expensive compared to Ikea or something like that. And uh, there is just not that much out there uh, because it's if you go to winter tour, 200 rooms full of furniture. You know, it's no wonder there's not so much 18th century furniture. So you can't really f expect to find it all that much. And I think uh, lifestyles changed. Uh, younger people are on their iPhones and they like the electronic equipment. And to invest in fancy furniture is, uh, I'd rather have an iPhone. You know, um, all of that adds into it. Uh, it is, I think, cyclical. Um, and I think it, 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 it's coming back, and for the very best stuff, it is still good. But uh, it, the upside is that uh, Victorian furniture and 20th century furniture are uh, what people are interested in, and it's a lot of it out there. You can collect it. All right, well, uh, uh, I will go out and sign copies of the book for a little, for maybe 10 minutes or so, and uh, then uh, if anybody wants to walk around the Kaufman Collection, we can talk about more furniture. It's always nice to have a captive audience. I bored all my friends, they, they won't come around anymore. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast. 